Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, January 15, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. In this talk, Professor Andrew Del Banco and Brent Staples discuss the role that fugitive slaves played in the lead-up to the Civil War. Thank you all for coming up um, and um, to this room, which is uh, my favorite room in New York. And I always say without fail when I'm here, going back, I guess, about 20 years, even before this was made, that uh, this is, I regard this as my living room away from my living room. So uh, it's comfortable. Let's begin with a scene in Baltimore in 1838. We're going to be standing at the train station in Baltimore as a tall black fellow comes up and prepares to board the train. He's dressed as a sailor, red scarf around his neck, big tall guy, hair swept back. His name at that point is Fred Bailey, but you will soon know him as Frederick Douglass. His wife-to-be, Anna Murray, is with him at at the ticket window buying tickets. Because Fred is leaving slavery behind in Baltimore and bound for New York on a train. Um, he's, he's too nervous to go to the window himself, so she buys a ticket as he goes up and down. Someone else brings his luggage. He hops on. He's all prepared. He's borrowed freedom papers from a sailor, and he's out. Fred arrives in New York. Anna joins him. They marry, and they end up in... Um, New Bedford, Massachusetts, where he's very soon recruited into the abolitionist movement uh, from a small church where he is practicing his oratory. And Frederick Douglass very soon becomes the most famous Negro in the world and one of the most uh, heard voices of abolitionism. And very soon, I mean, it, it happens, it, the, the alchemy that turned him into this thing, this person, this world-renowned person, has happened very quickly. Um, you know, within five years, within seven years, he's famous, and, and he's got his feet as, as an orator by 1850. And when, in fact, the Fugitive Slave Act, slave act happens, uh, Fred, as we were talking in the back, Frederick Douglass, um, begins to break more with the kind of pacifism of the um, abolitionists. And he begins to say things like, what you really need here to solve the slavery problem is a few dead slave catchers. So Douglas becomes radical. And a pivot point in this book, and a pivot point in, in American history, is when the country tries to compromise one more time with slavery by saying, We obligate everyone to return slave property that escapes. And this inflection point um, has its origins at the beginning, at the end of the revolution, does it not? It it does indeed. We know Frederick Douglass' story because he told it. He told it very well. He told it three times in full length. uh, uh, 1,200 words, 1,200 pages. Memoirs of, of his life. Um, one of the points I try to drive home in this book is that, of course, there were thousands of untold stories that we don't know of other brave black people uh, risking everything to, uh, to, to find freedom. And as Brent says, uh, I mean, you never quite know where you should begin a story. I mean, the, the story of fugitive slaves begins with slavery because no human being wants to be enslaved, regardless of what the slave master said about how it's good for you and people really like it and so on. That was a lot of nonsense. So the slave traders, the European slave traders who bought and sold people on the west coast of Africa knew that they should equip some of the more recalcitrant victims with with neck harnesses that had spikes on them so that they couldn't make their way through the underbrush back inland away from the coast and seek seek freedom from where they had been 
torn from their homes. So it's an old story. In the American context, a reasonable starting point is the Constitution itself, which includes a clause that we've come to know as the Fugitive Slave Clause. I like to think of it as a kind of intranational extradition treaty in the sense that the founders who came to Philadelphia in 1787 knew that they were really representing two countries. In one of those countries, slavery was essential. It was the bedrock of the economy and of culture. And in the other country, to the north, slavery was peripheral, marginal, and evidently headed to it for extinction. On its way out. On its way out. Not necessarily because everybody in the north was moral and farsighted and concerned with the welfare of black people, but because of the way history works and effects the climate have on how you make a living. But for whatever reasons, that was, that was the reality. <clears throat> so when the, when the delegates came to Philadelphia, they, they confronted the problem of how to reconcile these two countries. And one of, the, one of the immediate issues was, what would be the status of a human being who tried to take him or herself will, willfully, forcefully from slavery to freedom? What would be the obligation of the free states to the, to the slave states? So they tried to solve that problem in the Constitution with the Fugitive Slave Clause. I don't have the words right in front of me, but it said essentially no one can escape uh, labor or service to, to, by, by fleeing to, a sta- to, a, to another state, but must be returned to the party to whom labor or service is due. That passage was worked over, right. worked over, and worked over. Right. And in the end... When it came out, it was almost the kind of sentence that we tell people never to write in journalism. Exactly, exactly. Because it says something must happen, but it doesn't say who must do that, who must create that something, you know? It says these people can't be, be let to go off, but doesn't say that the states have the obligation to bring them back. It doesn't say that you, John Q. Citizen, have the obligation to bring them back. And so even that very clause is problematic because it shows the struggle, the unresolved struggle between pro-slavery and anti-slavery in America right in the Constitution. That's exactly right. If you look at it, as you say, it's, it's cast in passive language, must be returned. But Not a New York Times but, sentence. But, right. <clears throat> I say to my students, we'd use the blue pencil on it, right? Uh, it doesn't say who's going to do the returning. Is it going to be the local police in, in, in Massachusetts or the state government in Connecticut or the, fe- or, the, or the federal government, which had very little power for the first half century or so of our history. <clears throat> so in a sense, the story I tell in this book is a political story and a legal story about how the nation tried to put teeth into that toothless clause in order to hold itself together. It becomes inevitably also a human story, which is where we get to figures like Frederick Douglass, who were caught between these two sections and were running for their, for their lives and, in a sense, never achieved complete freedom or security in the North. Many decided to make their way further to Canada, some to Britain. Uh, but that was a consuming issue for the first half of the 19th century. It became more and more of an issue as the country expanded westward because the border between the slave states and the free states became longer and more porous. It wasn't just people running from Maryland or Virginia to Pennsylvania. Now it was from Kentucky to Ohio. So the Congress tried from time to time to pass a law to do this or to do that, but they could never really resolve this problem. Southern white slave owners accused Northerners of enticing their slaves across the border with promises of of, of freedom. And Northerners accused Southerners of kidnapping not only former slaves, but free black people uh, whom they might pluck off the field or from the road and take home as a prized piece of human property. Solomon Northup. So, well, Solomon Northup, strictly speaking, it's not quite right to call him a fugitive slave because he was a free black man who was kidnapped, as you suggest, uh, and sold uh, into slavery in the Deep South and had the very exceptional experience of being able to uh, escape from that condition, not by literally escaping, but because the governor of New York came and, came and got him. But yes, so, so the tension that we are aware of between the two sections, there were many causes and reasons for it. My argument in this book is that the plight of human beings trying to find freedom 
against all odds, was one of the driving factors that accelerated the alienation of North and South and eventually led to the Civil War. Now, we could get to the 1850 case, which is the center of the story, if you like. But you were saying, um, and people also have said, that, uh, that fugitive slaves brought the problem of human bondage into the town squares and the polite you know, front porches of New England and other places like that. Yeah. Well, you know, um, when you write a history book, I think you want to try to be responsible to what you're writing about, and you want to be wary of making a lot of facile comparisons to the present. And yet I'm not sure anybody would write or want to read a history book if we didn't see in it some of our own experience. We're all good at convincing ourselves that this or that moral problem is not our problem. It's somebody else's problem. Northerners were very good at convincing themselves that slavery was a Southern problem rather than, as Lincoln eventually called it, an American problem. And you can understand how it was possible for Northern white people, even Northern white people who had moral scruples about slavery, could persuade themselves of that because the black population in most parts of the North was very small. You saw slaves sometimes in the company of their masters or mistresses. But the plantation world was far, was, was, was far away. And you could ignore the fact, or you could close your eyes to the fact, that the banks on State Street or Wall Street were financing those plantations. Well, the textile mills. And the textile mills were where the Industrial Revolution really got started, were spinning slave-grown cotton into cloth for export or domestic consumption. Indeed, the clothes on your back were very likely there because slaves had, 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 had created them. Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was fairly marginal to the anti-slavery movement until the passage of the Fugitive Slave Law, said in one of his 1850s speeches, when we put sugar in our tea or into our desserts, no one tasted blood in the treats. No one tasted blood in the treats. Just a, just a little, a little sidebar, as we say. Seventy-two uh, percent uh, of the ten million or so Africans who were brought across the transatlantic went to work in sugar colonies. There you go. Seventy-two percent, and in fact, um, the death rates in these places were just astronomical because of the nature of the work. Um, plant itself is dangerous, but lacerate you. They were working with machetes and, you know, cut themselves often. Also, the process of pressing sugar often sacrificed limbs because you were feeding the various sugar into the mills and it crushed, you know. So basically, when Emerson is talking about sugar, sugar is synonymous with blood in uh, slave history. I think that's, that's right, and we can look at these people from 150, 175 years ago and shake our heads and say, how could they be so morally obtuse? But I'm, I'm a little cautious about that unless we're willing to apply the same standards to ourselves. Do we really want to know where that $6 T-shirt that we buy in the big box store comes from? Do we really want to know where the chocolate, chocolate that we enjoy, uh, what conditions it's produced... And I'm not exempting myself from this. I, I think this is a human trait. We're aware of what's going on in our neighborhood, but to take a larger view requires a leap of the imagination. Now, the paradox of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was it was, the, it was a political effort to solve this problem, to hold the country together, once and for all to make it clear that people couldn't run away from slavery and expect to get away with it. It was a merciless law. It denied the fugitive the right of habeas corpus, the most basic right in the Anglo-American legal tradition by which you have the right to contest your detention in open court. It denied the right to a jury trial. It denied the right to testify in your own defense. It made it a federal crime for any citizen in the North to aid or harbor a fugitive. It required citizens to cooperate with the local authorities. 
And it didn't quite create, but it enlarged a class of officers called commissioners, federal officers called commissioners, who could now hold a hearing, not in a real courtroom uh, with a jury of peers, hold a hearing, look at a piece of paper, and say, yeah, I believe that this person once belonged to the plaintiff, and I'm sending him back or her back. So it was an odious law designed to hold hold the country together. It had, of course, exactly the opposite effect. And Frederick Douglass, to go back to where we began, said it was a great service to the anti-slavery movement, a great service to the... Now, to me, it's an interesting question, why? And again, I would revert to Mr. Emerson for a little help with that. He says it was like a sheet of lightning at midnight, which leads to the next question, what did it illuminate? It illuminated the fact that slavery was not a Southern problem. It was an American problem. Now you could see a human being who had lived in your city for a decade or 15 years or God knows how long, literally being chased down the street by the gang of, gang of thugs with badges maybe, shackled, taken to the jailhouse, convicted with no, no, nothing like due process, taken to the pier, put on a ship, and sent back to Savannah or to Newport News or wherever to a very angry master. And this was happening in your neighborhood. So all of a sudden, it, it, it made the issue come home. So you're saying, actually, the performance of slavery in the, in the American town square, in the northern town square, had an effect. That's a good word. And, you know, I don't, you don't mean it, and I don't mean it as a denigrating word, but Frederick Douglass was a performer. He was a great orator and a great rhetorician in, 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 his, in his books. In fact, he was restless when his white abolitionist allies tried to constrain what he could say and how he could say it in his public speeches. He was a great performer. And, and uh, a number of the other famous fugitives, like the Crafts, William and Ellen Craft, right, who uh, were enslaved down in Macon, Georgia, and uh, she was a light-skinned uh, woman. He was a dark-skinned Man, So they concocted this plot that she would dress as a man posing as a slave owner, and they would travel together throughout the South and go all the way up to the North. They wrote a wonderful memoir of it in which they say, you know, we stayed in all the best hotels. <laughs> Some of John C. Calhoun's favorite hotels, right? Uh, and they made it to Boston and thereafter to, to England. And then there was a guy who literally had himself mailed in a box, shipped right. in a box, Henry Box, Brown, Henry Box Brown in 18, 1849. So the, the, there were lots of great stories, and stories are very powerful and very effective, and they humanized this abstraction. You know, I mean, we talk about slavery, the way we talk about racism or discrimination. These are abstract words, but the fugitive slave law and the stories it generated gave it a human face, and that made it a more complicated problem for people in the North. How much did this animate the abolitionist movement? Well, I think, I mean, the abolitionist movement, of course, was really underway uh, with a lot of energy already in the 1830s. But they openly, I mean, they exploited the problem, right? I mean, in that sense, and you get this feeling from some of the slave narratives, including from Douglas. In that sense, white abolitionists were happy to be able to tell stories of people being hunted down and, and, uh, and misused because it served the cause, you know? Uh, and, and so it's a complicated dynamic between the, the, the victims and those who want to exploit the victimization for the purpose of forwarding the cause of emancipation. And it becomes, it becomes a, complicated, a complicated business. So what do you think... Um... What, when is the point, do you think, that... Um, do you think that, as Douglas thought already, that the Civil War was already, was already um, by that time, inevitable? Well, that, you know, that's a tough... It's, a, it's, a, it's an inescapable but a tough, tough question because when we look at the past, maybe when we look at our own lives, everything feels inevitable. 
we can draw a line from, you know, I've put the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 at the center of the story, but other historians would put the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, the Dred Scott decision of 1857, or the conflict in Kansas-Nebraska, or whatever it might be. And you draw a line that goes from point to point and then leads to the firing on Fort, Fort Sumter and what happened thereafter. But one of the things that I try, and this is maybe the hardest thing, I think, for historians to capture uh, in this book, is, that, is to capture the fact that nobody knew what was going to happen. People in the past didn't know the future any more than we do. We don't know what's going to happen with the Mueller report or uh, the next you election. You don't know. You don't know. <laughs> now let's... Can we stay another hour for this? Right? Um, we don't know what's going to happen. They didn't know what was going to happen. So to say that it, the Civil War was inevitable, which I, I kind of lean in that direction because mm-hmm. I don't see that there was any way out of this conflict. Mm-hmm. But there were people of goodwill, good conscience, who tried to avoid it because, you know, they took the view that I suspect most of us would take that the consequences of an armed conflict generally are unpredictable. You don't know who's going to win. You don't know how many people are going to die. It's worth remembering, like with many wars, they all thought it would be over fast, right? Before it was over, historians keep on raising the estimates. Nearly a million people died. The hard way. The hard way. In a country of 30 million, you can do the math, that would be tens of millions of people today. And it was by no means clear that a conflict, an armed conflict between North and South, would end with emancipation. Indeed, there's a, there's a good book by an historian down at UVA called The Union War, in which he argues that if the war had ended quickly, if the Union Army had overwhelmed the South, slavery would have been left intact because the war only gradually became an anti-slavery war. Yes, and with, uh, with, with Douglas sort of whispering at a distance in, in uh, Lincoln's ear. Uh, and I think it's, and you know, he, you notice he has a lot of conditionality and nuance <laughs> in his arguments. But yeah, well, know, my editor told me, you know, I'm we an don't editorial look, writer. Yeah. My, my I problem, typically only have 600 words. Yeah. And, you know, there's, the line for me is fairly obvious, uh, and I, I agree with you, um, and I agree with the last thing you said, that, and I think it's self-evident, that the longer the war wore on and the more Lincoln became desperate to end it, that he was grasping at solutions, and this became an obvious one to reach for. Well, and in fact, uh, to pull it all together into the story, story that I like to try to tell, it was the, the war proved to be the solution to the problem of fugitive slaves because as the Union Army advanced more deeper into, into Confederate territory, it of course created a, popul- a population of hundreds of thousands of fugitive slaves. Mm-hmm. And the generals, some of them were deeply committed to anti-slavery. Some of them didn't give a damn about black people and thought that they were getting in the way. What, what did the war have to do with them? But they re- recognized the reality, as we would say, on the ground, which is, you know, what are we supposed to do, do with, with these people? people? Yeah. You know, what are we supposed to do with them? You know, take care of them for a while and then return them to their masters so that they can work for the Confederacy? building the uh, trenches and, and, and the munitions and so on. So you start getting this flow of correspondence from the field generals to the War Department in Washington saying, tell me what to do with these people. And some of them say, I, I, whatever you tell me, I'm not going to send them back because they're, they're people like us. Some of them say, they're a problem. Can I send them back? But the reality is that as the war proceeded, it became clearer and clearer that slavery was disintegrating before their eyes. And that, then, then the fugitives, uh, many of the fugitives, of course, began to serve the Union cause, and uh, thousands of them eventually enlisted in the Union Army once Lincoln and the Republican Party could see their way to permitting black people to serve under arms. 
So there is a sense in which this story goes from that clause in the Constitution all the way through the Civil War. And I guess what I try to do in this book is to put the fugitive slave experience at the center of the story in a way that maybe it hasn't been before. Did you come across um, any, any people we hadn't heard of, any fugitives we hadn't heard of? Because we know a lot of them. Uh, well, a lot of fugitives I hadn't heard of. Yeah. Maybe there are other historians who did more research before. Uh, sure. I mean, some of them, uh, there's a story about a guy named Joshua Glover in Wisconsin who uh, was imprisoned there. And, and I love that story because it has a great catch line to it. A, a, a biracial uh, crowd decided to spring him from jail. They got themselves a gigantic... Uh, ramrod, and they they knocked the door down, and the and the writer says, "Boom, boom, boom!" and out came Glover. Right? <laughs> so I had never heard of Joshua Glover before. I, uh, and there are many other cases, some of them don't have names attached to them. Uh, so anybody who would try to write a comprehensive history mm-hmm. of the fugitive slave problem could spend the rest of their lives doing it, and it would constitute. Maybe somebody will and should do that. Constitute mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds of biographies of people whom we haven't heard of. Um, so, so yes, and I also uh, encountered other characters that I hadn't either heard of or known much about, and and they were, and this might be one of the more controversial aspects of the book. We'll see. Uh, they were white people of conscience who hated slavery, but who reluctantly acquiesced to this law. And that I don't want to shock you all. That included Abraham Lincoln, who wrote to a friend in 1855, I hate to see the poor creatures hunted down and returned to their stripes, but I bite my lip and keep quiet. To me, this was one of the more pressing questions. How could that be? How could a person like Lincoln, who I think genuinely hated slavery, come to terms with this odious law? Not really come to terms with it, but acquiesce to it. And the answer has to do with the, the contest in his mind and indeed the contest in the nation between the cause of anti-slavery and the cause of pres- preservation of the Union. Yes. These two things could not be reconciled. But there were good and decent people who tried to reconcile them. And I think they've gotten a little bit lost in the way we tell our his- his- history. So I've tried to bring them a little bit into well, the foreground. Um- I think that um, to to jump a little bit ahead in that story, I mean, uh, when Lincoln takes office, um, he holds the first ever meeting of a president with Negro leaders of the United States. Right. And um, he, it's interesting too um, that that meeting is held without our dear friend from the front step, uh, from the side step, Mr. Douglas, was not present at that meeting. And that could not have been an accident. Uh, but there are a lot of ministers from Washington, D.C. And he brings them, and he tells them in a very hurried tone, um, I'm really sorry. I don't think that black people and white people will ever live together harmoniously in this country. And I'd like you to get behind my plan for colonizing African-Americans abroad. This is the first, his first meeting with them, the first everything. And Douglas, by then, is a newspaper editor, and he, it, may be, it, it may be his first paper or his second, I'm not sure. But he just, he, Douglas has been railing for quite some time against the colonization idea, calling it you know, undemocratic and anti-American and saying people who enslave people are Americans and need to stay here. He basically just throws a fit in the newspaper. And by the way, Douglas was never enamored of Lincoln from the beginning. Um, when Lincoln, when it was clear that Lincoln was going to become president, Douglas wrote an editorial that basically he thought he was kind of a person who had no particular literary talents beyond beyond the law. Uh, that he was hardworking, um, and that's the best that could be said for him. And it, at this moment. At this moment of the meeting, he was, of course, inflamed. Um, this, and this sort of begins a kind of dance between them that lasts um, actually until Lincoln's killed. Yeah, now, I'm not going to blame Douglas for being inflamed from mm-hmm. the vantage point of 
sitting here on this comfortable chair in your favorite living room in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he had reason to be inflamed. But I'm going to out myself as a, as a, as a Lincoln, uh, as a huge Lincoln admirer. And I would make the argument that Lincoln was always considering what we would call public opinion. And when he made statements like... So is the current president. Let's, well, please, please. <laughs> oh, that was a little bit of a low blow. Right? <laughs> when, he, when he went out there and said, let's, let's try colonization, I think he knew perfectly well that was a non-starter. He also knew, as Douglas acknowledged, in what I think is the greatest thing ever written about Lincoln, which is the eulogy Douglas delivered on Lincoln, 1876. I surrender. That's it. Okay. That... You know, he had to bring the public with him, and as much as we don't like it, most of the public, including most white people in the North, had no use for black people and would have been much happier if we had a country with few or no black people in it. So Lincoln had to, had to bring these people at least to a position of a neutrality on his, on his politics. And so you find him saying things that, you know, curdle our blood, uh, and I'm not saying that he didn't harbor what we would call racist ideas. He did. He was a man of his time. But that he really believed that we could solve this problem through colonization, I don't believe for a second. And uh, I don't know. I Eric, think, uh, is Eric Foner in the room here? No. I think, I think Eric believes that he believed it. Let's, let's bring Eric next time Eric. and we'll ask him. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, just, I'm just the editorial writer, but... Right. Uh, <laughs> I would say uh, I, I would say that um, the older I get, uh, the deeper my appreciation gets for the predicament in which Lincoln found himself. And uh, when I first spoke on this subject, when I was eighteen, uh, college, I had a sort of a more absolutist view. Right. You know, half a century later, I do understand, I do appreciate um, the, the complex problem of, of keeping together a country that wants to come apart. Well, that's exactly what Douglas says in that eulogy, right? Yes. That he had... It's lovely. Uh, yes. The speech we're talking about um, is the unveiling of the Freedmen's Monument right. in 1876. It's online. Go home when you go home and just, it's just an amazing piece of oratory. And just when you read it, think for the moment who's there. The president, Grant, is sitting there. Supreme Court, the whole of the government is there. And Douglas stands up and begins to say, and, and, and begins to say, starts out, you don't know where he's going when he starts out. He says, you know, Mr. Lincoln, from the beginning was really just the white people's president. Right. Just the white people's president. And he goes on to talk about his evolu- the evolution of his thought uh, and his coming around um, in the way he did. Right. It's, a, it's a sin to paraphrase a great writer like Douglas Agreed, yeah. or Lincoln, but I'm now going to commit to sin because I don't have the words in front of me. He says of Lincoln, seen from the true abolition ground, he was slow, cold, cautious, words, something like that. Mm-hmm. But seen from the point of view of a statesman who had the two goals of holding his country together and destroying slavery, he was swift, radical, and determined. And that paradox captures Lincoln perfectly. Uh, so my view is that they had their differences, indeed, but at the end of the day, nobody understood Lincoln better than Frederick Douglass. And, you know, the great, the, the real, there are so many tragedies of Lincoln dying uh, prematurely the way he did. Uh, but one of them is that he never got to write a memoir. <laughs> and what we would really, uh, we, what inquiring minds would like to know is what is take on of was of his interactions with Douglas. You know, it would be interesting to see that because, you know, uh, in the end, uh, Lincoln invites Douglas. He sees him, meets him a couple times and invites him to D- Douglas for tea, which is probably going to be an afternoon-long event. 
and Douglas has some other obligation and doesn't make it, and Lincoln's assassinated. Right. So that those ships didn't meet again in a way that uh, that they should have. And uh, my, the novelist uh, Saul Bellow, who's a, a hobby of mine for many years, um, when he left Chicago, he he uh, said um, that you know one doesn't stay in Chicago that for such a long period of time without having an exchange of vital fluids. Um, and that's sort of profane. But what he meant was that the sort of life essence of the thing, you know, gets into you. And had they had much more interaction, it would have been very interesting to see, you know, the kind of ideas of life force that they would have maybe trans, transmitted to one another. Of course, on the question of whether would be good if Lincoln had written a memoir. I shouldn't say this to a memoirist, and Brent has written a wonderful memoir called Parallel Time. Nobody ever tells the truth in a memoir, right? right. So, so, um, so I don't, I'm not sure how much better we'd understand Lincoln if he had written his own story. Well, I don't know. Let me just say this. Um, when you have... Um, it's interesting to write a memoir, right? There's a kind of write, a memoir you write from memory, uh, and there's a kind of memoir you write from primary documents that coincided with your life, you know, and so that you can actually verify events that happen and talk about them in that way. Um, and you know, Lincoln was a lawyer. It would have been very interesting to see yeah. what he had to say. He was a, he was a fact person. Uh, it would been very interesting to see what he said. But, you know, just two things you said. Let's hold them in opposition for a moment. On the one hand, you say that the Fugitive Slave Act brought slavery home to Northerners in a way they couldn't ignore, and that the performance of slavery before their eyes forced some action. On the other hand, you say, you know, well, they're Northerners who really they would have been rid of black people if they could and, and not been involved any further. Well, you know, we, we can't poll people from the past, so mm-hmm. nobody can say what percentage belonged to the progressive wing of the anti-slavery movement and what percentage belonged to uh, the, middle, the middle range. But I think there's enough evidence to suggest that people who had been relatively neutral and had been pretty good at closing their eyes their view, their view changed. So you mentioned the textile mills. One of the, one of the owners of one of the biggest textile mills, Amos Lawrence, writes after the fugitive Anthony Burns in 1854 is returned is to slavery, marched through the streets of Boston and returned to slavery. He says, we went to bed last night as good compromise unionists. We woke up as stark, mad abolitionists. That's the kind of evidence for me to suggest that the fugitive slave law did make a difference. We've got questions. Oh, we've got a lot of questions here. I'm okay. trying to put aside some See, of the you, inflammatory you, you ones. You answer these questions, right? That's no, I'm, I'm you, done, right? Believe me, I'm just going to read them to you. Oh, all right. Okay. Um, what sort of documents did you use when writing your book? How many personal details did they reveal about the people who fled slavery? Well, I read mostly published documents. I'm not, I wouldn't advertise myself as an archival scholar. Uh, I did do some work in some archives down in Missouri, mostly. Uh, but I read published documents, um, maybe with the literary scholar's presumption that if you read them closely enough, you can feel what those personal motivations were. So uh, if you read this book, which I hope you will, you'll find uh, legal cases, you'll find uh, narratives by the fugitives. You'll find uh, memoirs by abolitionist activists, political speeches, the, the stuff that was recorded in the Congressional Globe, what the senators and congressmen were saying to each other. So I tried to get at the past through a variety of sources of that kind. Mm-hmm. Now, how long did it take you to do this? Well, we talk, you know, as to writers, it's hard to answer that question because I think I've been preoccupied by these issues probably for close to 25 years. I signed a contract for the book more than 10 years ago, and my generous publisher gave me two extensions. So I guess I was working on it for about a decade and actually writing it for maybe four years. Mm-hmm. It took a lot out of me. Yeah, well, this is, I, I, what, and um, when we write on a daily basis, I mean, which is not quite literature, I agree, 
But when you have a complicated story, at some point you come to a point um, where you, you, you see an inflection point or a set of facts that I say breaks the back of the narrative for you. Mm -hmm. And you see a through line from beginning to end. And you turn to the editor and say, okay, fine, I'll have this in a couple hours. Um, when did you get to that point? That's exactly right. I, and I, my wife will know. She's heard me say this a few times. I, I got up. It was almost like I got up one morning and I said to myself, I found the story. And, you know, first I thought I was going to write a book about different characters arguing with each other over the 1850 law. And I began to realize I had to go back in time so that a reader could actually understand where this came from right. and where it was headed. So I've, I went all the way back to the Constitution and tried to tell it. This sounds very presumptuous, but try to tell the story of American history with the fugitive slave at the center of the story. Mm -hmm. And then I knew what to do. Then I knew how to write it. You know, uh, it's interesting. Um, my uh, dear departed uh, friend and interlocutor, John Hope Franklin. Great, met, great you know, historian. When I was a, a wee lad in almost short pants. Uh, and I kept talking to him over a period of like 30, 40 years. Uh, and when he began uh, as a historian of black Americans uh, and a few other people doing that, that it was considered kind of a, a sideline. It's right. a dishonorable sideline um, that most of history, most historians look down on, actually. Um, and now, I must tell you, I have read in the last few years a number of books on various historical subjects with the enslaved person or the, or the escaped slave person at the center of the story. So it's just sort of been moved from the periphery, right, to the middle. And there's lots of documents, too. But that, that is sort of like a whole, you know, involution. That's absolutely right. In, in history generally. And that's absolutely right. And John Hope was one of the key figures for bringing that story to the, to the center. And the amazing thing is for how long we were able to tell the story of our history with slaves erased. Exactly. And, uh, and uh, Winthrop Jordan, who, uh, mm -hmm. who helped me on a big project uh, about a decade, 20 years ago, uh, was, had an essay about, uh, about Sally Hemings. It's a wonderful essay I drew from, from a piece earlier this year. And he said that when he started doing this, there was, there was nobody. It was John Hope Franklin, one or two other people. You know, and he basically he ended up, and I guess white over black. He must have worked on white over black. Oh, well, that's forever. A, that's a masterpiece, and uh, I'm sure he did work on it for a quarter century or so. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Um, why do you think George Washington was so obsessed with getting Ona Judge back after he escaped and began living as a fugitive? Well, you know, George Washington, you could tell the same story about Jefferson. Uh, exemplified this ability for you of human beings to contradict themselves fundamentally. On the one hand, he wrote privately, I wish slavery would somehow go away, there would be some kind of gradual abolition, and it's a real problem, both morally and practically. On the other hand, you know, she was his property. And uh, he, like many of the founding fathers, while they might have regretted the fact that they inherited these slaves and might have preferred a utopian world where human beings would not be enslaved, they were so in, deeply tied to their the conception of themselves as slave owners that it was very hard for them to think themselves out of that self-conception. So, uh, you know, he wrote stuff about how he didn't like slavery, but he was... He was running a distillery late in his life that was uh, worked by slaves uh, not long before he died. Mm. And he never gave up looking for some of his fugitives. And it's, it's at the close of the Civil War, by the way. Uh, it's a this very interesting uh, encounter between uh, Washington and the British command in New York. Mm -hmm. You know, the British, the British have been routed. They're ready to go home. But they've given uh, citizenship and right of passage to all those... Uh, escaped slaves who fought on the British side. And they said, we're going to take these guys with us. 
Washington comes on board the ship and begins to argue, like, I want, I want my slaves back and my people back. And, and the British commander just basically begins to sort of lecture. And, of course, at the Treaty of Paris, the same thing is happening. Americans try to negotiate a provision of the treaty that forbids the British from taking um, slaves away. And, and, and the British commander, in, in, in just almost a schoolmarmish way, stands up and teaches a moral lesson to the Americans and also says, listen, no meaning can be put, can be put upon this treaty that causes the crown to break its word to these people. And they sail off with them. And, and Washington himself is apoplectic. He's just, he's just beside himself a combustible guy. Yeah. But at the same time, when he dies, when he dies, have you ever read his will? I have not, I'm afraid, no. It's online. I think it's, it's another thing online, too. It, because he tells, his, he tells his, prevar- his family, don't prevaricate, don't delay you free all these people now, as I told you to, and I don't want this to happen, that to happen, yeah. that to happen. Only what I said that I wanted to happen. And, of course, part of that has to do with, you know, Protestants and death. Well, I was going to say a lot of slave owners, <laughs> a lot of slave owners were fine with emancipation after they're gone. Exactly right. Right. Exactly. But, you know, on the point about the British, just very quickly, that's another way in which our way of telling American history has changed. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when we were kids, we would grow up grew up being taught that the blue coats were the good guys on the side of freedom and the red coats were on the side of, of oppression, right, and tyranny. That's not the way it appeared to black people. Right. Black people, the British crown was an opportunity for freedom and the, uh, the continental... A couple were, times around, in the War of 1812, too. A couple times, exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, is there any parallel um, with fugitive slaves awakening the North to the horrors of slavery... Um, to the modern ways of refugees seeking asylum at the southern border. Yeah, well, you know, you asked me It's a long question, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Okay. Uh, One more. Are are today's refugees, in your opinion, awakening the American public to the degraded living conditions that are causing people to leave their countries in the first place? Well, one would hope so, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, one would hope we could get past this nonsense about building walls and start thinking seriously about the conditions from which these people are... Are, are fleeing. Uh, as I said earlier, I think historians should be wary about presentist parallels, but they, as I got toward the end of the book, I looked, well, said, geez, what am I writing here? I'm writing about sanctuary cities, you know, Boston, to some extent Philadelphia, even Cincinnati, saying we're not going to cooperate with the federal authorities coming here to chase down fugitives who were the undocumented or illegal immigrants of their time. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a paradox that we're witnessing right now, states' rights, right? We usually think of states' rights as something that belongs to the racist right in the South. George Wallace in the schoolhouse door. Get the federal government out of here. We organize our lives the way we want to. Black kids go to this school. White kids go to that school. Uh, All of a sudden, states' rights in 1850 became the rallying cry of the liberal progressives in the North. Get Get the federal government out of Boston. You've got no business here. And we're seeing that today, right? We're seeing the states standing up to federal policies and saying we will not cooperate with the immigration enforcement and so on. So uh, there are parallels, and I kind of try to leave them there by implication rather than beating them over the head. Another Lincoln question. Isn't Douglas one of the people who changed Lincoln's mind against colonization? I, well, you know, as you say, we don't know as much as we would like to know about the interactions between Douglas and Lincoln, but I think, I think there's good reason to believe that Lincoln took Douglas more and more seriously as time went by. It seems so. Absolutely. Well, you know the great story of at the second inaugural after he delivers that sublime speech and uh, the White House sentries wouldn't allow Douglas in and, and Lincoln says, no, 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 Let my, I want to I speak with my friend Douglas. And he asks him, how, how did I do? How did I do? And Douglas said it was a sublime performance. When you want to be a fly on the wall in that room? Yeah. I'm telling you. That would be really something. Um, the Fugitive Slave Act was an attempt by white Americans to advance their own interests at the expense of black Americans. Is anything like this still going on today? 
Yes. I didn't. I just read. I just read what they give me. What can I say? I mean, um, yes, but uh, we're not. You know, would require two more evenings to talk about the problem of mass incarceration, the um, the problem of inequity in educational opportunity. I mean, you know, I talk about a story that. I've told here that it runs from the Constitution to the Civil War, but of course it's not a story that's over. Mm-hmm. It's a story that we're in, still in the middle of. You know, it's, it's true. I mean, uh, I had a, a I had an experience. That, once again, it's like it's amazing. You, you know, you get older. You, I mean, when I was eighteen, I thought I knew everything. Of course. And I and I really thought, you know, that the Civil War was over. No. <laughs> but, but, but now I realize it's it's not over. And it's like it keeps getting fought in, in new forms, you know, and new avatars every time. Well, indeed. Just yesterday, the chancellor of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, resigned over the Confederate monument business, right? It's not over by a long shot. Um, why was the, the recapture of fugitive slaves able to rally people against slavery where other efforts had failed? Well, by other efforts, I mean uh, other efforts consisted of uh, speech making and pam- pamphlet publishing and uh, and sermons in church and speeches in Congress. And uh, it's not, I'm not here to say that they didn't have an effect. Uh, I mean, I think you can see the growth of anti-slavery opinion over the second quarter of the 19th century. But you can see a kind of leap forward with the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 for the reasons that we've been discussing, because it, it put real human beings in the spotlight and, uh, and, and made people feel ashamed mm-hmm. that they were complicit in this, in this system and uh, made them realize that this was not going to be compromised. Mm-hmm. There was no middle ground as hard as decent people were trying to find it. If you, if you were had infinite time, um, what would be the next book you wrote in this line? Can I evade that question? Uh, frankly, well, I... you have an idea because you're, you finished this, and you, but, you have, but, you, but you see something. I'm, I can see it. I mean, I mean if you don't want to give it away, you don't tell me. But. Um, no, I'm not being coy about it. Frankly, uh, uh, I need to spend some time re- regrouping. Regrouping. <laughs> regrouping and... Um, but you did. But you you just you alluded earlier. I mean, it may not be yours, but um, you think there's a much bigger story or a more panoramic story to be told about escaped slaves. Yeah, I'd like to be a consultant for that project mm-hmm. <laughs> rather than write it myself. That's okay. okay. Yeah. Um, I'll keep it a secret and hope that Louise will invite us back in another five or seven years for <laughs> something else. So are we about done. Listen, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.